Well, good morning. Nice, nice. Good, good morning. Well, my name is Matt Casey. I'm one of the deacons here um, at Redeemer and serve with Campus Outreach at, here at IU. And um, it's fulfilling in the, the preaching this morning for Chris. Uh, a little preview of the sabbatical run that he's about to go. The Casey family is actually, uh, the kids at least, not me personally, but the kiddos of the Casey family are half Hoshan. Half of them are from Terre Haute because Brittany was born and raised Terre Haute from birth to the Isle. When we walked down the aisle and I took her out of that town, um, we, she had never left. She didn't know there was a Target until she, we got married and left Terre Haute. True story. It's not a, it's not a true story. Um, but anyway, so we're rejoicing that um, God's calling a faithful pastor to Terre Haute. Um, it's been a long prayer for Brittany and our family. Um, and so we're excited that God is raising up a laborer and a leader um, to go there. So um, we are jumping back into James. I know what you're thinking. Weren't we in James like a couple months ago, and then some things happened, Easter, different things like that, and uh, we're actually still in James 1, so we have, we're just creeping right along through that. So Chris gave himself the easy load, one passage in James 1, 1, then he's like, do four passages, and then he gave me a long run of scripture, and I know there's a game at one, so I have a time, uh, t- or ticking time as well, so I promise I will be done and wrapping up before then. Um, but let's recap James, just so we're on the same page as far as what J- the letter of James is written in. Um, so if you guys want to turn to your James page, did not take this down, I should have. If you have a Bible, a great Bible in the row, uh, that will show up right here, page 1011. Um, but we're looking at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Um, but let's recap before we reread. Um, James, brother of Jesus, um, apostle of God, proclaimer of who Jesus is, is writing to a people group that are dispersed and scattered, right? So this is a common actual theme in lots of the letters in the New Testament. These people that came to Christ, began to walk with God, and were dispersed from their towns. And so we actually see an example of this in Acts, uh, when you see the Apostle Paul, uh, the first martyr of the church, the first one to die um, for Christ, um, was the, the deacon Stephen, the servant Stephen, right? And um, he's uh, stoned to death. And uh, it says that the, that the feet of Saul, they were, they, they were driving, he was driving people from their homes. The Christians were being driven from their homes um, by Saul. And then Saul encounters the risen Christ and becomes a Christian and proclaims him. So this is a common encounter for people being scattered from their homes because they're Christians. Um, so you can imagine just the new world. People come to Christ and they didn't know that they were signing up for this. This is different. I'm being sent and driven from my home, from my town, all that I've ever known and experienced, Right? Um, I'm being sent out from there just because I'm proclaiming to be a Christian to follow Christ. And so they're scattered. But James is writing to encourage them, to give them courage and boldness and, and hope. And he actually starts the letter with, count it all joy, my brothers, my brethren, when you encounter trials of many kinds. So when you're scattered, even scattered from your home, sent out from your home, you're not allowed to come back to your hometown. He says, consider it a joy uh, and a privilege. And then he says, if you're doubting, maybe you've got questions about how God is providing for you and caring for you. He says, don't shift, but ask for wisdom and discernment from God that you might have confidence in in him, even if you're being sent from your home. So this is an interesting book, actually, to teach from, and it's actually an interesting passage to teach from, because that's not happening to us right now. And so you kind of, I can kind of approach this passage and feel kind of inadequate, because I'm not being driven from my home. I'm free to live in my home at this point in time for being a Christian, and most of us, it'd be the same story for us as well. Um, and so how does this passage, who's applying to people who are suffering and being uh, persecuted for their faith, how does this apply to people um, like us? And so I think the theme of this section that we're going to look at uh, is the theme of steadfastness. 
under trial, under hardship, under um, persecution? How can I remain steadfast um, amidst challenging circumstances and dynamics? So I think it directly applies to our life uh, in this moment. And actually, um, the Christian life, when you really begin to think about it, the response to hardship and uh, trial and challenge should be altogether different. That should be altogether different from anyone else in the world. And I think James is writing to these people to encourage them uh, to move in that direction. So uh, would you join me in standing as we read this passage together? James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers with, withers with the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, what a privilege it is to come and gather and hear your word. God, I pray that this morning would be helpful um, and would move us in a direction of further um, endurance in challenging situations um, as we look to you, our hope and confidence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So it's an interesting starting point for this passage. You're talking about a dispersed church, people that are, that are separated from, I mean, think about their context. You might have been a landowner, you might have had a great family all settled in the city, you might have had a good business or a good profession in the city, all of a sudden you become a Christian and it's, you cannot be there anymore. What a circumstance. You cannot be, you cannot congregate there, you cannot go back, um, you have to go find a new life, you're a disruption to our city, Right? And James naturally starts with when you're in, in trials, in challenges, in, in hard seasons, considered a joy. And then he says, maybe you're questioning the goodness of God. Maybe you're kind of wondering and you're doubting a little bit. He moves that progression um, in the passage before what, what we've just read this morning. Um, maybe you're struggling with doubt. Maybe you're wondering, God, is this what the Christian life is, being driven from my home? But then he goes to an interesting passage. He goes to your wealth, whether you have some or not. That's an intriguing uh, jump, James. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What does that have to do with persecution, hardship, being driven from your home, right? That has nothing to do with that when you really think about it. Or at least I wouldn't be concerned about those things uh, immediately. But you think about it, everything you've ever known or at least in the city you live in, everything, your profession, career, family, your wealth, your land, that's pretty important back in those days, is gone. The natural thought would be, what about my wealth? 
God, this is, listen, I understand that, I, that Jesus died for me and rose again and that he can change my life, but I, I didn't know I was signing up for this, that I'd lose everything, that I'd lose all my wealth, all my status, all that I found significance in this world. That, that, I was not signing up for that. That might be a, a question that would arise in your mind, your heart, as you think about the Christian life. But James just gives the encouragement. He goes, you need to have a bigger vision, bigger understanding of your life and the direction of your life if you're a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, if there is no God, yes, that's an important thing. Your wealth and your assets and your family line, those are important pieces. But if you're a Christian, you have some sort of different hope than anyone else in this world. And so wealth takes on a different meaning. And so James uh, talks about the first one, the lowly person. He doesn't actually say the poor person. He just says the lowly person. May he exalt uh, or boast in the exaltation he has. So let me translate this. That word boast means to glory in. So if you have any accomplishment, maybe you're a high school quarterback, you can throw a football over the mountains, and you tell people stories about all the things you used to do in high school and maybe could still do if, if coach would have put you in. You might have taken state. You know, you glory, boast in those things. Um, your experiences, your family, different things you love and enjoy, these are things you boast in, you glory in. He says, let the lowly person, let the, the one that's not rich, uh, boast in his exaltation. So if you have nothing, if you have no wealth at all and no riches, take good courage and boast in your position before God. In Ephesians 1, um, Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and he prays that they might have hope in the, the assurance of the riches that are available to them in Christ. These aren't natural, worldly riches, or it's not bank account status, or it's not your investments, but it's the riches that you receive in Christ, an inheritance that's awaiting you. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store it for yourself treasures in heaven. He's saying, if you're poor, don't boast, or don't find it glory in your riches. Find glory in the one who offers you riches to come. And I don't know about you, I imagine there's all kinds of varying income levels and wealth levels, but I know, personally, what it's like to not have much, okay? Now, this is going to be in the context of American, you know, when you think about the world, I have so much compared to many in the world. But when Brittany and I got married, so I took her out of Terre Haute and said, you're going to come to Evansville, the eighth most miserable city to live in America, according to a Gallup poll. So I, I took her there. And I'm, I'm around college students, they all get, a lot of them get married and they're excited and a lot of times they'll come to me and say, you know, as they're thinking about rings and the big day, getting married, we talk, they go, hey, where'd you get this thing, this ring, this uh, little band? And uh, did you get it from Jared or Reese Nichols or something like that? Did you, you know, where'd you go? Or like some foreign island where you got this? We were poor, okay? When we got married, guess where we got this ring two days before our wedding? Walmart, 25 bucks. $25 for my wedding band. Now, I didn't spend that money on Britney's, but she took all my money for her <laughs> ring. 25 bucks at Walmart. It's been great. It's worked great. Nine years. I celebrated nine years. So this, this is a great ring. ring. And, um, but when we got married, we had nothing. We had a massive student loan. I mean, a big student loan bill. We owed Sally Mae, and she, we kicked her out. She's gone. And, um, but we had small means, small amounts of funds, huge amounts of debt, and I got in this cool business venture called College Ministry. And let me tell you, just <laughs> the money's pouring in, you know. And um, so I know what it's like to be poor, okay? To have little, almost nothing, and owe someone a lot of money, okay? And uh, do you know what you do? You think about all the time when you're poor? You think about how poor you are and how you'd love to not be poor anymore. Those are the things you think about. And so if you, if you have little means, what... James is saying is, don't spend your days worrying about what you don't have. Think about what is to come. It was offered you. It's not 
a license to be foolish with your money, but it's saying don't worry about what you don't have. Think about the one who's promised you riches beyond measure with him and life with him, right? Now, he actually spends a small amount of time on the poor people because it's hard to be rich, right? So maybe you're wealthy in here, maybe you got a lot of wealth. Um, and the Bible actually has a lot to say about wealth. It's really hard to be a Christian and wealthy at the same time. Why? Because wealth is a major distraction from godliness. It can be a major distraction from godliness. And rich people, wealthy people, tend to f- forget uh, what it means to be generous. And so here's that. The, this is backed up by poll after poll. So if you look up a guy named Paul Piff, who was a UC Berkeley PhD candidate, did a bunch of research on giving. There's a great book out there called Who Really Cares? It's about generosity and giving. If you make below $25,000 in America, your average give, the average giving in America is 4% of your income. But if you make over $100,000 in America, the average giving is less than 1%. It's hard to be rich and generous. Why? I, I don't know why. I don't necessarily know the reasons why, but I would venture to believe that the, the line between uh, need and want probably becomes blurred. And the uh, rat race to kind of have a status before other people probably becomes a challenge. And that's why I think James spends so much time on the wealthy person. If you're poor, hope in the promise that God has offered you great riches to come. If you're wealthy, do you find significance and identity in your wealth? And he says, if you do, you need to look at the grass. You need to look at the grass. And so I don't know if you guys are lawn care fans, but if you had beautiful uh, purple flowers show up in your backyard over the course of the spring semester, or the spring, uh, that wasn't grass. It was pretty, but it was weeds. It's called ground ivy, all right? And so those, those little flowers will pop up in the spring, but once the heat pops up and starts to escalate and go increase, those little flowers are going to dry up and disappear, right? And he says, if you're wealthy, don't find significance in your wealth. Don't find significance in your income. Don't find significance in your accomplishments or achievements. Remember the grass and that by the end of your life, it'll all matter. It won't matter at all. And it'll all be gone and handed off to somebody and you won't take it with you. So if you're poor, find hope in your inheritance. If you're rich, find hope in the fact that your life will end and you'll take none of it with you. That does some crazy things when you think about generosity in the kingdom. Funding people. I'm sure the Rawlsons would love to hear some of you wealthy people who say, I just want to be generous to you and bless you guys in your ministry out in Terre Haute. Right? Because you don't find significance. And what is James, why is James saying this? Because you might be next. You might be driven out of your town. You might be driven away from your family and friends and your career and all these different things. You might have to be scattered as well. And what happens to your wealth? Now you're the poor person. And you can't find significance or hope in your wealth and you can't find significance in your poverty. What James is saying is look to the one who offers you hope and redemption. I have a bad illustration, but I think it's a good one in this regard. Um, We're teaching our kids allowances right now. So that's a big thing we're doing right now. So Lily gets more because she does more, and Haddon gets less because he does far less. And um, so we had the big allowance day. The kids were like, we're going to get bug, um, bug like zoos or whatever like that, a bug case or whatever. Anyway, um, they literally walked through Aldi and they're like, bug case, that's what I want to spend my money on. It's completely like out of nowhere. And so we go home, we get all our allowances gathered up, and we go back and we um, go to buy the bug cases. And we went through a different, couple different stores, so Haddon had his money in his sweatpants and a couple dollar bills, and Lily had hers in a nice clutch, you know, right here, perfectly situated next to her hip, and Haddon's like, you know, just whatever. And um, so we finally get to purchase the, the, um, the bug zoos or bug uh, cases, and Haddon gets up there, and he goes, we're going to teach him, you know, put the money on the counter, and talk to the cashier. Haddon rolls in, 
pulls his, put all his pocket, just one quarter. He made like four bucks. What made it to the store was actually one dollar. He had dollar bills that had fallen out of his pockets, who knows where, and throws it up on there. No clue what money is, no clue like what he's buying or how he's going to buy this thing. But he's just like, mom and dad are here, we're going to buy a bug thing, and uh, here's my quarter. No clue what's going on. And in that situation, he has nothing. He cannot buy what he needs. But I would say, this is where the illustration kind of breaks down, because I'm assuming his motives, okay? But I bet all he's thinking was, I'm with mom and dad, they're going to take care of me, right? They're going to take care of me. And so we go ahead, and actually, you don't have enough money, and we're going to teach them a lesson, okay? We're going to teach them money and finances and keeping your money. We go, you don't actually have enough money, you have a quarter, okay, to buy this thing, that's not going to get it. Lily, would you want to help Haddon get the bug thing, whatever it is? And... Um, and Lily says, I'd love to help Haddon get his bug thing. And so she gives him some of the funds. So in this illustration is kind of what's happening. The poor person, Haddon, has nothing but the relationship with God, right? Has nothing but the relationship with his father. And that's all he needs um, for care and provision, right? And the wealthy person has wealth and funds, right? But they don't hope in their wealth. They're not concerned about what they have at the end of their life. They're not concerned. They know that they're grass. And they say, I'll gladly provide for you in this situation. It'd be my joy and privilege to care for you in this moment. Because I don't really care about this anyway. It's just money. It's just wealth. You know? And so that's what James says. And you might be next. You might be this person next and have nothing as well. And you'll be the poor person as well. And that's why James talks about money. And this in the West, in America, this might be one of the most important things to talk about. Because one of the far greatest uh, concerns of our heart and mind as we go to sleep at night is probably our money. And where it's going. And what it's going toward. So don't boast in your wealth or lack of wealth. Boast in the one who offers you riches above all. We move on. Um, In verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So if you're dispersed or you're under some sort of challenging situation. For when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Um, Chris preached last week on John 15... I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. In fact, John 15 is a whole kind of meditation on what it means to abide in the Lord. And we, Chris, explain that word abide, it's this Greek word, meno, what it means is to remain, or tarry, or make your home, right? So here's a picture of what that means. We're going to move to Orlando this summer with Campus Outreach and live in a hotel room for a whole month, right? And we're not going to abide at the Wyndham on International Drive. We're not abiding there. That's not our home, right? So at no point in time during our time there will Brittany lean over to me and say, hey, babe, I don't like the color of these walls. Would you paint them? Right? Because we're not planting there, right? She doesn't go, I don't like the flooring, Matt. Uh, can you change the flooring? You know, she won't do any of that stuff because we're not planting there. We're not abiding there. We're not making our home there. But when we come home, she'll say, um, hey, babe, can you, can you paint the walls? No. Uh, like, no. And uh, so we make it our home, right? Because we make decisions in light of living in Bloomington. We make decisions in light of this being our home. We make decisions about our life, future, career, profession, all these different things because this is our home, right? We're planting here. All decisions come through here. And so abide means you abide in Christ. All decisions come through him. He's your home. He's the one you're looking to put your hope and sustenance in and your future in. You make all decisions that come through him. That's the word abide. In this passage, when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, it's a derivative of the word abide, meno. It's this word hupameno. 
And so make your home under. So abide under what? Hardship, trials, challenges. Now I know where we live. We live in America. We have Brookstones and Sharper Images. We used to have Sky Mall, but that went, you know, defunct and it went out of business. But so much industry is devoted to simplifying and easing our lives. So much, it, so much of the world that we live in is devoted to, at least the things we buy and purchase are about making your life simpler and removing hardships and challenges. Hupameno, abiding under, is the call of the Christian. It's completely unique from anything else in the world. You're called to abide under challenges and hardship. Why? Because Jesus came and, and sat under the greatest hardship and challenge of all, enduring the cross for our sin. So we have a hope and a leader and a, someone we follow who endured the hardest challenge that was ever conjured up, right? And so God calls us to endure under challenges. So, and he calls you to be happy in the process. We call this squeaky wheel at our home. Is anybody squeaking, making lots of noise, grumbling, complaining, being frustrated? He says, blessed, happy is the man who remains steadfast, enduring under, abiding under challenges and hardship. Why? Because when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, Christians aren't hoping in the next 40, 50, 60 years to be their, their lasting home, right? We're hoping in a future home with God, enjoying him, knowing him, following after him. So I'm not so concerned about the challenges and hardships in this life. And I'm not going to make decisions in light of getting away from those challenges and hardships in this life. I have a Savior who endured everything for me. And it's my joy and privilege, and I'll be happy to endure challenges and hardship and even be dispersed from my home and my city and all my belongings being taken from me for him and following him. Why? Because he's already done it and more for me. What do you think about some testing in your life, challenges in your life? Maybe you're enduring under the weight of singleness. It's like, I don't want another summer alone. I don't want to approach another fall alone. I want to know, be, know and be loved by somebody. And that's your burden to bear, this idea. But, but God has called you not to grumble and complain to that, but view it as a glad privilege to endure under the challenge. If it's, if it's a challenge for you personally, it might be a joy of singleness. Maybe you think about illness. Maybe you've had a doctor's appointment that's recently unearthed some illness that you're frustrated by and annoyed by and grieved by. But God has called you to gladfully endure it. And not just run away from it, not just run to Netflix or run to just busying your life to amuse yourself through these things, but actually endure gladly under. Very aware of what's happening and endure it under. Uh, Infertility. Maybe you're leaving the city and you don't want to leave. Maybe you're married to someone that's not a Christian. Maybe you're married to a difficult person to be married to. Maybe your finances are tight. Maybe your family dynamics are challenging and frustrating. Maybe, I mean, maybe those are some of the things you're thinking about when you think of a hardship. But God has called you not to just avoid them and run away from them, but the Christian life is gladly enduring them and being steadfast under those things, abiding under challenges. Abiding under challenges. Um, Brittany and I were talking about this. We love to read missionary biographies and different, um, um, just kind of heroes of the faith and different people. Um, one of our favorite is this lady named Darlene Diebler-Rose. Um, so back in World War II times, she served as a missionary uh, before uh, World War II in East Asia. Uh, and then was actually there uh, during World War, parts of World War II. Um, and what happened was uh, they were serving for the first four years. And it was hard, hard challenging circumstances. 
Uh, and then World War II broke out, and they were captured by Japanese and sent into an intern in, or a prison camp um, with the Japanese. She faced uh, lots of things, including solitary confinement for a season, and her husband died. And she says this about kind of thinking back, what, when I, before I got on that boat to go to East Asia eight years before, um, what would have happened? You know, this, this, so here's a quote from Darlene um, Rose Diebler, or Diebler Rose, I think. If it's not up there, I'll read it so well. It'll be so... Anyway. Viewing those eight years from th- this far side, so viewing those eight years from this side, I marvel at the wisdom and love of our God who controls the curtains of the stage on which the drama of our lives is played. His hand draws aside the curtains of events only far enough for us to view one sequence at a time. Had those eight years been revealed to me in one panoramic view that misty gray January morning in 1938... Would I have the courage to board the ship? If I'd seen it all, would I have gotten on the ship? I wonder. Through the intervening years, tempestuous winds of gale force, or gale force have buffeted me. Waves of tidal proportions have threatened to carry me under or dash me upon the rocks. But knowing that I did not know those many years ago, I can thank my God for every storm that has wrecked upon the rock Christ Jesus. Or wrecked me upon the rock Christ Jesus. She says, if I, would I have gotten on the ship eight years before? If I'd have known, I'd have had a, a really rough season. And she said, I would gladly, that's why God gives you, I'll gladly endure it. So this this idea of hupomeno, abiding under the hardships and challenges in this life. The next passage that um, James moves into is verse 13. So let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When I talk with students, I have conversations with students all the time about growing as a Christian, beginning to grow as a Christian. And what I notice from friends and I observe people around me, a lot of people think that growing in the Christian life is about aligning the proper circumstances. If I could just get the right circumstances, if I get the right person to marry, if I could have married the right person, if I could have gotten the right in-laws, if I could have gotten the right situation, the right boss, the right career, if I could have just had the right circumstances, then, then things would be better for me. And circumstances actually have nothing to do with the Christian life. If, you, if, if it were based on, if the Christian life were based on proper circumstances, um, we would have never had a fall in the beginning because Adam and Eve had the perfect circumstances, perfect relationship with God, perfect setting, had nothing to do with their circumstances. What the problem was, what was within them, that was the problem for them, is what was contained in them. And so this is, this is why the Christian message is altogether different from anything else, because most religions or most kind of thinking about the world is just get in the right circumstances, get the right mindset, get the right, the right setting for your life, remove the bad things from your life, maybe seek a more isolated life, have the right things around you in the right circumstances, and then you'll have a good life doing the right things. And that's not what the Christian life is. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is one of internal transformation. God comes in and transform your transform your desires and your longings and your heart, and He tra- changes your life in a dramatic way. And the problem with the world is not necessarily the circumstances of the world, but the problem is us. The problem is that we are here, and that we are messing things up. And it's not about the circumstances being wrong or right, but it's that we're present, we're here. I mean, think about how many problems in your life are directly related to relational issues with those around you. It's internal. And he says, if, we, if you're tempted, 
And that'd be the, kind of another question that would come up if you're being scattered or dispersed, if you're under some sort of trial or challenge in your life. Am I being tempted by God? Is God tempting me? No, God doesn't tempt people. Um, God cannot tempt with evil. He himself tempts no one, but he allows hardship to happen and occur. And it naturally occurs because we're here. The Bible would say that our hearts are corrupt and fallen. We naturally live in disobedience to God, and that's where all the the problems arise. We're not living in relationship with God. We're living in disunity with God, rebellion against God. And now there's lots of wrecked relationships and problems in our life. He says the problem is within. And you ask the question, why do you do anything? You ever thought about the question, why do I do the things that I do? And the answer always is, always is, because you wanted to. You always, you always do exactly what you want, want to. Quick illustration for this would be, you ever lied at work? I have a friend who, whose boss demands that he lies, um, he's an engineer, he demands he lies and fudges his numbers um, at the end of every week as far as production goes, and he doesn't lie, okay? He doesn't lie on the report, so he has his boss actually sign off on the report saying, I changed these numbers at the end of each week, so he doesn't lie. But why would you lie at work? Because you want to do exactly what you want to do. Think about this. If the boss says you need to lie at work to meet your numbers or meet your, your end quote or whatever it might be, you could say, no, I'm not going to lie. My primary goal, the only thing I want to do in this life is honor and glorify God. That's the only thing I want to do, therefore I'm not going to lie. But if you do lie, what's your highest aim? What do you really want? What do you really want to do? I want to keep my job. And so why do you do what you do? You either want to glorify God, make much of him with your life, or you do exactly what you want, which is whatever you want to do. Both are actually doing what you want to do. But one is centered on God and one is centered on ourselves. And so he's saying, James is saying, the problem is not that God is tempting you, but God is allowing what is in you to come out in this world. And so here's a picture of this. We have some rules at our house, right? So I never taught Haddon how to smack people, though he has. And uh, I've never taught him how to bite. I'm not saying whether or not he's bit anybody. I've never taught him how to do a lot of things that he does. I say, you need to eat your food, Uh, you need to go to bed, you need to not do that. I've set some rules and parameters along these things. But Haddon disobeys and Lily disobeys, my kiddos disobey, because it's just in them. It's just in them. So I set some parameters for how you should operate in this home and in this family, but they just naturally disobey because it's in them. And that's what James is saying. You disobey, you rebel against God. We sin, not because of circumstances or situations or not because God is tempting us, but because of what is within us. That's the problem. And um, if anybody are Tim Keller fans, you ever heard the word epithemia? That's what that word desire is, his own desire. This word epithemia, over desire, is actually used probably 35 times in the New Testament related to this. It's a sexual term. It actually just means to lust and crave after something. So God is saying the problem is that you lust for things that aren't God. You and I lust for things that aren't God, and that's where the problem comes about. It's not necessarily a desire for good or bad things. It's just a desire or an over-desire, a super-desire for things that aren't God. This thing needs to make me happy or satisfy me. This thing will make me complete rather than God, and that's where the problem comes out. We have an over-desire for rebelling against God. And I don't lure and entice my kids to disobey. I set the parameters, and it comes out of them anyway. The same for us. God sets the parameters for how we should operate in this world, and we just disobey. It's within us. It comes um, from our desires. And then in verse 15, it's kind of a warning passage. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Desire grows up, 
produces a kid. It's called sin. And then he goes on. He says, actually, there's a grandkid in this situation. So a desire grows up, gives birth to a kid of sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So what is James saying here? This is a big problem. This desire, this over-desire for things that aren't God, this is a problem. Why? Because it gives birth to sin, and it actually produces a grandkid of death. Okay? It's a big deal. Sin is not something to be messed, messed around with. Sin is not something that we just kind of haphazardly keep around us, but sin is something to, be fl- to, to flee and run away from. And, um, but the problem is, it's in us. It's a big problem, right? If it's in me, then how do I get rid of it, right? And uh, I'm not neutral. I always do what I want to do. I'm not just, there's never a time where I'm not neutral in disobeying God or living for Him. Um, it has to be dealt with because it has imp- incredible ramifications. It actually produces death. So the natural thought is, well, I'll just change my circumstances. We naturally think if I, if I can change this relationship, change jobs, then I'll have a different boss. Or maybe I'll, you know, move to a different apartment where I'll have different people that I'm wor- working under me and I'll get them along with them better. Maybe if I was married to someone different, my life would be better. Whatever it might be, um, we just decide to change or desire to change our circumstances. But the problem is within us. So how do you change if it's your problem and it's in you? And James talks about this, and there's a theme throughout the scriptures. Um, you think about the, the idea of being steadfast, enduring under some sort of trial. We give up quickly. We fall short often. But we do have a hope, right? There was one who was steadfast, who abided with God perfectly and perfectly um, endured all things in this world and then perfectly endured a death on our behalf. He died on a bloody cross. Jesus died on a bloody cross and was perfectly resilient and steadfast on our behalf, right? So because the problem is within us, because of our sin, we can't enter God's presence and we need someone to make amends for that. It'd be a sacrifice for that. And so that's what Jesus accomplished. He was perfectly steadfast before God and died a perfect death in our place to bring us into relationship with God. So that deals with the guilt and the penalty for sin, right? So we could stand before God innocent and guilty because of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. But how do you change? God doesn't just leave you there to live with this problem, internal problem. God doesn't leave you there. How do you change? How do you grow and change? Well, God has promised his spirit as well. He's not only offered a cross to make payment for your sins, but he's offered your spirit as well. And so how do you begin to change? Pictures in Ezekiel 36 and 27, where God says, I'll put my spirit upon you and remove your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh that now is alive to me, now responds to me and knows me. And I'll cause you to walk in my ways. So how do you change? It's not by changing your circumstances, not by changing your setting, but but. In salvation, in coming to Christ, God has made payment for your sin and made you right with him, and now he offers his spirit. He puts his spirit within you to begin changing your desires. This is a wood podium, right? If I hit it, my knuckle hurts after time, right? And uh, because I'm flesh and this is wood. If I go to a stone pillar and I I knock on the, the stone pillar for a while, my finger hurts because I'm flesh. The stone doesn't hurt at all because it's stone. That passage in Ezekiel says, I'll remove your heart of stone. Stone doesn't respond to any kind of subjection from flesh, right? And so I'll remove your heart of stone that doesn't respond to me, is dead to me, and I'll put in you a heart of flesh that's now alive to me. And God is the one who promises to change your desires. What's within you is a problem. And God changes your heart and gives you a heart that's now alive to him and begin to, can begin to change as well. And what does God want you to do? 
that, that word epithemia, that over-desire for things that aren't God, he wants you to now replace those things with him. Those things that you thought would satisfy you, the career, the person, the relationship, the wealth, the opportunity, the season, the circumstance that you thought would make you happy forever. God has now said, now uproot that and plant your joy in me. Plant your joy and happiness in following and knowing and enjoying me. And in that, you could be dispersed from your home. You could be sent out from your home and never to return because you're following me and be happy. Why? Because someone has been steadfast on your behalf and my behalf. And someone has endured what we deserve on the cross. Um, And that's how you begin to change. It's altogether different. That's altogether different from anything around us or any kind of social thinking, any kind of religion around us. And then James moves on. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That kind of first fruits of his creatures, a lot of commentators think it's just that first crop or batch of believers. People that actually came to Christ. All these brand new Christians, they're kind of the first couple generations of Christians, that's the first fruits of his creatures. Do not be deceived. Okay? It's kind of the bookends. If you find significance in your wealth, you, remember, you need to remember that you're nothing. And if you find good things in your life, you need to remember where they come from, right? Don't be confused. If there's good things in your life, things to enjoy, things to find pleasure and happiness in, they don't exist because we're, there's, there's something special within us, right? They exist because they come from God, who's the father and, and provider of all good things. He's the father of lights, right? So the bookends of this passage would be, don't put your hope in your wealth because you're nothing, And don't find, if you find good things in your life, don't think they came from you. They come from God. That means all the provision in your life. That means all the opportunities in your life. That means all the hardships in your life and challenges in your life. That also means all all the good things that are coming from your life. um, They're produced because God is good. Now think about this. Just the idea of goodness and light, right? When you go home and you enjoy a steak or some hamburgers some mac and cheese, I'm telling you what I'm having for dinner this evening, you, you don't look at that and say, look what I've accomplished, or at least you shouldn't, and I've provided this meal. You say, I don't know how cows exist, you know, I didn't make them, and I, I don't know how the soil produces feed for my, the animals, and I don't understand how grain works and all these different things, and I know I didn't create these things, but I'm enjoying them now because someone, God, God is good and he cares for me. And your meal should be a worship experience, right? If there's a cool opportunity in your life, you don't look at it because I'm so talented. Look at me. I'm so talented and exceptional. I go, no, the God is good and he cares for me. Even if life is hard and you have no money and you're poor, right? This is for my good. This is for my good. I don't want to grumble or complain. I just want to enjoy the one who's given me this life with him with lots or nothing. Right? And then he's the father of lights. So that in him there's no shade or variation. There's nothing in him that's dark, right? What does light produce? Light produces life, right? So the spring has sprung. We're actually like almost to summer, right? Even though it's a little colder right now. And spring has sprung and all these things come to light. Life produces uh, life. Things come alive when there's more sunlight um, on plants and animals, right? And so light provides life. The light of God in your life produces life, joy, happiness, but the light of God also brings clarity, right? So if you have 
a scared kid or if you're a scared college student in your dorm and the lights are off, you, you immediately go turn the lights on, right? Oh, no, never mind. It's all right here. Clarity, right? Understanding. I know where I am. I know where I'm supposed to be, right? God provides life and God, life with God produces clarity. Clarity of I know whose I am and where I'm going and I'm, I'm going to follow him no matter where it takes me. So why can these people that have been scattered hearing these things be encouraged? Because they know the Father of lights who gives life to them and gives them clarity, right? And they don't put their hope in other things. We're going to move into our time of communion. This could be a good time to meditate on the goodness of God in your life. So if you're a Christian, take some time to consider how God has been good to you and provided for you. Um, And even think maybe I, I, I identify with the wealthy person who finds significance in their career, their opportunities. Maybe I find significance in, in my relationships and all these different things. Instead of remembering, I'm, I'm grass, I wither and fade. Um, this could be a good time to meditate on some of these principles and passages from James. Um, we're going to have different stations, one up here, one in the back. I don't, I'm not sure about up here, I imagine. Um, and uh, we'll um, have this time to take uh, communion. Uh, the wine is gla- in the glass marked with twine. And um, if you're not a Christian, um, this is a meal and a symbol reserved for Christians. And so uh, we'd encourage you to not partake. Uh, Instead, take the time to consider where you're at before God. Have you come to know him? Have you come to Christ uh, in a way that is saving? And come to know him um, and ponder that. So we'll move into a time of worship and time of communion. Um, But let me pray. God, we just thank you so much for this morning. God, we praise you that you're the father of lights and all good things come from you and there's no shade or variation in you god Um, we praise you that you've saved us from ourselves the problem is us and yet you've initiated and saved us from ourselves god and i pray that we not find hope uh, or confidence in things other than you and praising in jesus name amen